Welcome. Welcome to the next stage of our journey through John. We are in John chapter 17. Let me read it to you. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they've obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and came, kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Wow, <laughs> that's a lot of verses. Took us nearly four minutes to read those verses. What can we glean from them? What can we unpack together? 
As we've said before, in John's gospel, you have this slowing down as we reach the end of the gospel. And here, John gives over 26 verses, a whole chapter to this prayer. The longest of Jesus' prayers that we have recorded in the Bible. As we read it, you will have no doubt noticed themes that that flow through it. He doesn't just pray one thing and then another and then another, but themes flow through like, like strands through a tapestry that disappear for a while and come back, disappear and come back. It is a moment when Jesus knows the hour has come. Notice that that phrase, the hour has come. In John's gospel, early on in John's gospel, we're told the hour has not yet come. In John 2 and John 7 and John 8, the hour has not yet come. But in these final chapters, we hear again and again, the hour has come. This is the moment. We are in the last 24 hours of Jesus' earthly life as he heads for the cross. In some Bible translations, you might find a heading that says, Jesus' high priestly prayer. The reason it says that is that Jesus seems to follow the pattern of the prayers that the high priest would pray on the Day of Atonement. Before the high priest laid hands on the sacrifice, that would be sacrifice, a goat or a lamb that would be sacrificed for the sins of the people, the high priest would pray a set of prayers. You can read about them in Leviticus 16. First, the high priest would pray for himself. Then he would pray for his fellow priests. And then he would pray for the nation of Israel. And Jesus seems to do the same here. Jesus prays for himself. Jesus prays for his priests, his disciples, and then Jesus prays for those who will follow them, his people. Here we have Jesus, whom the writers of the Hebrews will describe as the great high priest, walking through these prayers before the ultimate day of atonement, before the ultimate sacrifice. We know that Jesus in these last hours spends time on the move and it's quite likely that as he is praying this prayer, he can see the temple. He can see where the high priest will be. He can see where the high priest will pray. But what does Jesus pray? Well, he prays a number of things. He prays that he would be glorified. He prays that the eternal life would be released into the disciples. He prays that the disciples would have unity. He prays the disciples would be protected on mission. He prays the disciples would be sanctified. He prays the disciples would know the love of God. Let's work ourselves through. Let's work through those headings. Firstly, Jesus prays for himself. He prays, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Now, if all we had were the first three words, that would be a strange prayer to pray, wouldn't it? Glorify me, Lord. In fact, it would be heretical if anybody other than Jesus was saying it. For us to pray, Lord, glorify me, would, would be blasphemous. For Jesus to pray it, it's okay. He is the Son of God. But of course, he doesn't just pray, glorify your Son. He says, glorify your Son, that your Son might be glorified, that others might be glorified. Yet again, Jesus, the servant leader, the suffering servant, prays that he would be glorified purely, 
that people would see the Father. Purely that others would be blessed. Later in the garden, Jesus will pray very personal prayers for his own need. But here he is praying, Lord, yeah, give me strength that I would honour you. That's what Jesus is praying. Would I bring honour to you? Would I, yes, be blessed with strength and power to walk through this, but would I be blessed that people would look to you and glorify you, Father, and would they be blessed in that? Glorify your Son. He prays that eternal life would be released amongst his disciples. Praise this, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know God, the only true God and the Son who you sent. Hopefully you notice that these verses are packed full of relational language. The Son prays to the Father. The Father blesses the Son. These verses talk about knowledge. And remember that biblical knowledge is not factual knowledge. It's not knowing about something. It's knowing someone. It's intimate. It is relational. Jesus makes this explicit when he prays for eternal life. It's about knowing God. Remember back at the beginning of the gospel? For God so loved the world, he sent his son that they might have eternal life. Not just life without end, but actually life in relationship with the Father. This is what Jesus is praying for his disciples. That in the same way that they have known him, that they have walked with him, that they've been in relationship with him. As he is going to the Father, he is desperate for them to know that intimacy with the Father. That's why the Holy Spirit will come, as we've heard in previous chapters. The Holy Spirit comes to establish that relationship afresh. This prayer for relationship with God is layered throughout this prayer, throughout these 26 verses, that the disciples would truly know God, not know about God, but know God, have intimacy with God would know the Father in the same way they've known the Son as they've walked with him, but also know the Father in the same way that the Son has known the Father. Notice how Jesus makes reference to the glory he had before he came. Jesus was with the Father. The Trinity was together and Jesus stepped out of that to be in the world and is now stepping back into that, that intimacy of relationship. And Jesus is praying that the disciples would be drawn into that level of intimacy and security and safety. They get a glimpse again of the son's relationship to the father and they get an invitation into that relationship. Jesus prays that the disciples would have unity. He says this, they might be one as we are one. Jesus is praying in what he has been teaching. Do you notice that? He's been teaching about intimacy with God, abide in the vine, and now he prays it. He's been teaching that they should love one another and have unity together, and now he 
praise it in. It's not enough that the disciples know God. It's not enough that they have this intimate relationship with God. It's not enough. It's not right that they should kind of hide away and just be, oh yeah, I have this great relationship with the Father. It's just me and him. No, Jesus is praying that they would have unity. See, unity matters. Disunity destroys. Unity is divine and reveals the divine message to the world. Notice that the unity of the disciples, as Jesus praised, praise is not based on their agreement with one another. The foundation of the disciples' unity is not they all get on all the time. It's not that they all believe the same thing about everything. No, that's, that's what a cult is like. A cult is where everybody learns the same thing and has to agree on the same issue in the same way at all times. That's not unity. That's control. What Jesus prays for is unity. And that unity is not based in agreement. It's based in the Trinity. It's based in the eternal. Their unity is based in the unity that the Son and the Father have, a divine unity. It's not about chemistry. It's about the very character of God. That is the foundation of unity. Remember, these are some of Jesus' last words. If he makes space to pray about unity, unity really matters to God. It matters because of how disunity damages individuals. And it matters, did you notice this? So that the world will know who Jesus was. It is unity in the church. It's unity amongst the believers based on with a foundation in God himself that speaks to the world the truth of the gospel. Jesus prays that the disciples would be protected on their mission. Not just protected so that they feel safe, but protected so that they can take the gospel into the world. He says this, My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. We talked a few weeks ago about the fact we're not meant to hide away in our holy huddles. We are called, the disciples were called to be salt and light to the world. One great threat to that mission is disunity. But the other threat is the devil, the accuser of the brothers, as he is described in Revelation 12, verse 10. The world is not neutral. They have an enemy. One of their number has already been robbed of his inheritance. Yes, Judas stepped into that of his own free will. Yes, G Judas was fulfilling at one level the sovereignty of God, but also Judas was deceived. And Jesus is praying now that none of the others would be deceived. None of the others would be robbed of their inheritance. And so he prays for them. Not that they would be lifted out of trouble, but that in the midst of trouble, they would be protected by the grace of God, by the power of God. Where does that protection come? Well, we hear it only in his name, the authority of Christ, the authority that Christ is going to win afresh on the cross and through the resurrection. In the name of Jesus, they will be protected. Jesus prays for the protection of his disciples. 
Jesus prays the disciples would be sanctified. Sanctify them by the truth, he prays. Your word is truth. You'll notice there's been numbers of challenges to the disciples. Disunity is one. The devil is another. Personal sin and drifting away is a third. So what does Jesus pray? Sanctify them. Jesus has spoken about the role of the Holy Spirit, about the counsellor who will come alongside, about the advocate. But now he prays in the truth of God, the word of God. How, do we, how, how are they going to keep themselves safe? They're going to hold up the word of God like a mirror. And looking at it, they'll see who they truly are and also who they can become. I like to picture the word of God in the way that James describes it as a mirror. I'm sure like me, many of you have got a mirror in your house and they tend to be just before you leave the house. So you can check, any spinach in my teeth? So you can check that you look okay before you go out into the world. The Word of God is meant to do that. We're meant to look at it and not define it by what we look like, but let us be defined by what it reflects back to us. Truth. That's how we're sanctified. We open up the word of God and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, speaking to us through those words, we're transformed. Jesus prays it, prays for unity, prays for protection, prays for sanctification, that their lives might be transformed as they delve into truth. Finally, Jesus prays, that the disciples would know the love of God. He prays this, the love of God, that the love you have for me, he says to the Father, may be in them. Jesus has prayed into these three challenges, disunity, the attacks of the devil, personal sin. But before they kind of get caught up in that, he then also prays, but let them know they're loved. Let them know they are loved. Jesus has modelled afresh in this prayer the relationship he has with the Father. The love he has for the Father, the love the Father has for him. And now in that context with the disciples looking on, he prays, would they know how much they are loved? Would the eternal love that exists between Father and Son in the Godhead, would that flow into these disciples? Would they know it's not about performance? It's not about getting it right all the time and we'll discover they don't get it right pretty soon. But would they know they're loved? Would they know they're delighted in? Would they know the truth of Zephaniah, the prophet Zephaniah that says the Lord sings over his children? This is unsolicited affirmation. These are the men who heard the father say, this is my son with him, I'm well pleased. Jesus is saying, God is well pleased with you. God delights in you. What is more, Jesus is praying they would know the love for themselves, but also that that love would again propel them to love one another. Again, look, the theme comes in again, doesn't it? Love one another. Be in unity like the Father and the Son are in unity. Know the love of God. Know it for yourself and know it for one another. This is an incredible prayer. And then Jesus says this, I pray also for those who believe in me through their message. Yes, Jesus prays for himself, 
Jesus prays for his disciples. But Jesus is also praying for us. We are those who have believed through their message. I love Jesus' faith here. He knows the hour has come. He knows that all of them are going to deny him at one level and run for cover. They have no faith in themselves, but Jesus has faith in them because he prays not only that they will come back to him after the cross, but they'll also preach the gospel and people will believe in the message. Jesus is, Jesus is praying faith into them. Yes, you will fall away for a few days. It's going to be tough. But guess what? You're going to come back. And guess what? You're going to preach. And guess what? People are going to believe on the basis of what you preach. And therefore, I'm going to pray for them now. Jesus has faith for us. Jesus is praying for me. Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is praying for us that eternal life would be released to us, knowledge of the Father. He's praying for us that we would live in unity. He's praying for us that we'd be protected on mission. He's praying for us that we'd be sanctified by the word. He's praying for us that we would know the love of God. Wow. But it's even better than that. We said at the start, didn't we, that Jesus follows this model of the high priestly prayer. Praying for himself, praying for the priests, praying for the people of Israel. The high priest would then lay his hands on the sacrifice and the sacrifice would be killed. But Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus doesn't lay his hands on another, on an animal, on a spotless lamb. Jesus lifts up his hands as sacrifice. Jesus is the spotless lamb. We can trust these words because of who's praying them. He's not just the high priest. He is the sacrifice who takes away the sin of the world. But it's better even than that. Because whereas the high priest would sacrifice a different animal every year to deal with the last lot of sins and to protect for the next lots of sins, what do we know about Jesus? He dies once. For all, he is the high priest. He is the sacrifice. The one. And we know he's the one because he doesn't stay dead. On the third day, he is raised. Because when the spotless lamb of heaven is sacrificed, the power of sin is broken. Jesus dies not just for our sin, but to break the power of sin. And when the power of sin is broken, the wages of sin no longer have to be paid by you and me. And the wages of sin are death. Death is defeated as Christ dies and is raised. Which means that our high priest does not just pray it in the past, Jesus is alive in glory and prays it in the present, which is why Paul can write in Romans, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Jesus did not just pray these things for us the night before he died. He prays them now. He intercedes for us now. 
He prays now that we would know the Father. He prays now that we would know unity. He prays now that we would be protected from the devil. He prays now that we would know the love of God. He prays now for us. And it's even better than that. You see, the high priest was the one person who could go into the presence of God on that one day of atonement each year. Having prayed, having sacrificed, having dealt with his own sin, he could go on one day into the Holy of Holies and see, be in the presence of God. But we know that because our high priest, Jesus, went to the cross, the true Holy of Holies, that the curtain has been broken, split in two from top to bottom, which which means not only did Jesus pray for us then, not only does Jesus pray for us now, but he has opened up the presence of God that we can pray, that we can bear our soul and call out from our hearts to our heavenly Father, right in the Holy of Holies, right in the throne room, right in the presence of God. And we can know God doesn't just hear the prayers of the Son for us. He hears our prayers in the name of the Son. Wow. What a prayer. What a Saviour. What a Lord. What a God. What a privilege. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that your son died for us. We thank you your son prayed for us. We thank you your son prays for us. And we thank you that because of his prayer, because of his sacrifice, because of his obedience, we can freely come into your presence and pray our prayers. And we can receive blessing from you that we might be a blessing to those around us. Amen.